Good morning. It's great to see all of you. I'm glad you're here. I look around, I see some people that I have known for years and years and years. And and I see others, I stand out front Sunday and greet a lot of the times, and I'm like, who in the world are these people, and how did they get here? (laughs) So many new faces, which is a great thing. Rick asked me a few weeks ago if I would share a lesson this morning. He and Suzanne have been out of town, their son Jonathan and his wife Nicole. Jonathan was, they were going to visit with them because Jonathan was going to run in a race or be in a race. He started out in a kayak and then he was on a mountain bike and and then he ran. Apparently it was quite a thing. Rick said, well, we'd like to go up and watch him do this race and we won't be getting back home till late Saturday night. They're here this morning, but... So would you preach? And I said, well, yeah, I'll do that. Because I understand you all all know preachers don't really do their lesson until Saturday night, right? That is not true, okay? That's not true at all. But uh, I was glad to be able to do this and and help him out. So the title of today's lesson, you can see, by the way, Jonathan, I asked Rick, I said, well, how was he at the end? Two Two plus hours of all this stuff. Rick said he was very sore. He had cramps in his legs, but the important thing is that he finished, right? Finished the race. So the title of the lesson today is Think Small. That doesn't quite sound right, does it? You can, you can find lots of encouragement, think big, you know. But today I'm saying let's think small for a few minutes because we're getting ready to kick off this semester of small groups. And I have one very simple message, mission this morning to encourage you to join a small group if you haven't already done that. They're going to start today, the very first ones. Others will be starting up the rest of the week. It's not too late. You can still be a part. So the first thing I want to talk to you about this morning is the importance of having a plan. The importance of having a plan. Now on your sheet, there's a fill in the blank, I think. And it simply says this, a goal without a plan is just a wish. A goal without a plan is just a wish. So let me give you a few examples. Suppose tomorrow morning you're going to be on that famous 630 flight of Delta's from Pensacola to Atlanta, because we all know if you leave here, you're flying to Atlanta before you go anywhere else, right? So you're a good traveler, and you get up at the crack of dawn, and you throw your stuff in, and you get there an hour early, and you check in, and you finally get to the gate, and you sit there and twiddle your thumbs until it's time to go. But what about the pilot? He probably just comes in like five minutes before and grabs the keys off the hook and says, okay, let's go. Is that what happens? No, that's not what happens at all. Hours ahead of time, he and other people are busy. They're studying the weather, which way is the wind going to blow behind us or across us or in front, back in our face when we go up there. How many people are on board today? And typically when we have that many people, all their luggage weighs this much. And we're going to do some calculations. How much fuel do we need? We want to be sure we have enough. We don't want to have too much because that's just extra weight we have to carry that costs us money. And uh, we're going to look at the other traffic, what other planes are going to be going around here, and what's our route going to be, and we're going to leave this time, and we're supposed to get there at this. And finally, after all this stuff is worked up, they end up with something that's called a flight plan. 
okay? They don't go anywhere without a flight plan because they have a goal, and their goal is we have all these precious souls on board, and we want to land them safely in Atlanta, Georgia. And so because we have a goal, we have a plan. All right, number two, think for a second. Just imagine, imagine you're an elementary school teacher. Some of you know what this, there's this thing now called the Common Core, okay? And it says this is what all your kiddos are supposed to know by the time they get to the end of the year. And so your mission this year in elementary school is my kiddos have got to learn all about fractions. What's a numerator? What's a denominator? What's a common denominator? What's a least common denominator? How do I add fractions, subtract fractions, multiply fractions, divide fractions? How do I turn a fraction into a percentage? How do I turn uh, a fraction into a decimal number? All this stuff. And that's just one part of math. Then there's language arts and then there's science and there are all these other. These kids have got to learn all this stuff this year. How in the world, teacher, are you going to do that? I'm going to do that because every day I'm going to follow my lesson, what? Plan. She says, I have a lesson plan for every day, and we will faithfully follow it. And teaching by teaching, review by review, test by test, homework by homework, exercise by exercise, when we get to the end of the year, my kiddos are going to know all about fractions because I follow the lesson plan. You go to the doctor. You know something's not quite right. So here I am, doc, you know, and so he does some tests and he checks your blood pressure and listens to your heart. They do some blood work. Maybe you have to have a scan. Finally, he ends up with a diagnosis. He says, Fred, here's the problem. And I'm like, okay. And he, and what if he said, okay, well, that, that's it. See ya. That, that's not it at all. That's just step one. Step two is then he says, okay, here's what. You need some bed rest or you need some medicine. Maybe I have to have surgery or I need some rehab or whatever. He comes up with all this stuff and all together it's called a treatment plan. The, 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 the deal is not about getting the diagnosis. The deal is about what's the treatment plan because my goal is for Fred, if I'm the doctor, to get better. And so in order to do that, we're going to make a plan. And by the way, if you notice that every doctor, when he's discussing the treatment plan, he always or she always says, wouldn't hurt if you lost a few pounds. That's always a part of the treatment plan, right? Seems to be anyway for me. My doctor used to tell me, you either need to lose some weight or you need to grow about three or four inches taller. <clears throat> then maybe we could get the numbers to balance out a treatment plan. We have a CEO of a business. Years ago when I was getting my MBA, every class that I had, the first thing they drilled into us, didn't matter if it was finance, accounting, marketing, all of it, they all said the same thing. You must have a business plan. If you start without a business plan, you are doomed to fail. And the first part of that, as strange as it sounds, is you have to figure out what business you are in. I'm not going to go into all that, but there's some famous stories about people who thought they were in one business 
But that's not really what they were doing at all, and, and they ended up in trouble. Got to have a business plan. Suppose we have a young couple that just had a baby. Anybody know somebody like that? Matt, you know, maybe they're sitting down at the, the table one day and they say, well, you know, we got this new baby and uh, maybe there's going to be college in the future and we, you know, we, we'd like to buy a house or we need a new car and one day we'd like to retire and uh, we have all these things and so we're going to need a financial what? Plan. We're going to need a financial plan. And I'll give you the Reader's Digest condensed version. Okay, you ready for this? You must spend less than you make and save and invest the rest. Now, everything after that is just extra fluff. That's the financial plan. But you got to have one. If, in other words, you have a goal. Well, when we get to be 67 or whatever, this is what we want our picture to look like. Well, that doesn't just happen by accident. It happens because somebody had a plan and we followed it. Do you have to adjust along the way? Yes. Sometimes do you have to take a detour? Yes. But all the time you have a plan about where you want to go. Planes land safely. Math is mastered. Illnesses are overcome. The bottom line improves. Golden retirement years are enjoyed all because somebody had a plan. Very important. Now, let me take you back to 2002 when First City Church started. We had a plan. <clears throat> Believe it or not, we did. We knew one thing. We actually knew two things. First thing we knew is, above all else, we wanted First City to be a church where grace abounds. That was the foundation and the bedrock of everything. We knew in our hearts and we believed that God wanted to build a church where people could come and experience His mercy and His grace. A church that was filled with people who were loving and compassionate and forgiving and understanding and whatever it is, we love you and we just want to help it be better. Because we believed that God had been so gracious to us that we had to be gracious to one another. And so like Field of Dreams, we thought, well, if we build it with God's help, the people will come. And guess what? You did. Amazing what's happened in all these years. So we had a second part of our plan, and this has been from the beginning. There was a lot we didn't know, by the way. The first Sunday that we met, I think there were 186 people. We were in the recreation room at Homestead Village. Everybody couldn't get inside. There were people standing outside in the parking lot, you know, trying to listen through the doors. There was no class for the babies, you know. It was just like, here we are. But we thought, okay, once all these people come, what are we going to do with them? And our plan from the very beginning is when people come and they're part of this big group on Sunday morning, we have to help them move to a small group. That's the only way this is going to work. That's the only way people are going to grow. That's the only way we can keep up with each other. That's the only way that we really can love each other and serve each other and all the good things that are supposed to happen in a church. If everybody just stays here on Sunday morning, as great and as wonderful as this is, 
we thought, no, we have to try to get people to move over here and be a part of a small group. So that was our plan. And so you might ask, well, where in the world did you get a plan like that? I'm glad you asked. And we got it from Jesus. Where else are we going to get it, right? That was Jesus' plan. Think about him for just a minute. He grew up, he was about 30 years old, and he and God were having a conversation one day. This is my version of the story. And God said, okay, it's time to start. We've been waiting now, and so now it's time to begin. And so Jesus appeared on the scene, and he started preaching, and he started telling people, you know what? The kingdom of God is very near to you. That was his first sermon. Well, Jesus, what's this all about? Well, I have a goal. I have a mission. Well, what's that? Oh, I've come to seek and save the lost. I've come to build and establish the everlasting kingdom of God here on earth. I've come to bring the rule of God on earth as it is in heaven. Wow, Jesus, that's a pretty big goal. That's a pretty big mission. You're probably going to need a church bus and a website and a building and, and uh, you know, what are you going to do about your Sunday bulletin, right? You know I'm exaggerating. I do that sometimes. Jesus said, no, I have a plan about how I'm going to do this. I have found 12 guys, and I'm going to call them to come and be with me. And that's how I'm going to reach the goal. What? What are, what are y'all going to do? Well, every day I'm going to get up, and we're just going to kind of wander around and meet people. Sometimes it might be little children. Sometimes it might be someone who's sick or blind. Sometimes it might be someone who's full of self-righteousness. Sometimes it might be someone that everybody in town is saying, Oh, what a sinner. He says, we're just going to walk around and we're going to meet them all. And they're just going to watch me and see how I talk to these people and what I tell them and how we interact. And there's an old expression, an old blessing, Jewish blessing. It says, and the followers will be covered in the dust of their rabbi. Jesus says, I'm their teacher, I'm their rabbi. They're just going to follow me around and they're going to get all covered with my dust. And then, most incredibly maybe, he says, after three years, I'll be finished. And I'm going to go back to heaven, and I'm going to turn the whole thing over to them. And the fact that we are all here this morning is a direct result of Jesus choosing those 12. And by the way, who did he choose? Well, Jesus, you surely are going to need some Wall Street people. Maybe some guys from the university? No, I think some fisherman brothers, a tax collector, a zealot, which is a good word that just means a terrorist. Those are the kind of guys I'm going to choose. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. And here's why I think he chose those people. So that we will all know that if they could do it, what? We can do it too. Because the surpassing power for all this, Paul said, is not from us, it's from where? It's from God. That's why he chose those kind of guys. And so 
three years are up. He goes back to heaven. He says, guys, I'm leaving it with you. Go into all the world and tell everybody the good news. Love you. I'll see you in a while. And he's gone. Well, now what are we going to do? And so they kind of sit and pray. At least I think they prayed. I hope they prayed. For about 40 days, and all of a sudden, Peter gets up, and I feel like preaching today. It's just like Peter, right? Somebody else probably said, why does Peter get to preach? You know, uh, you know how they used to argue about who's the greatest? And just kind of another reason, I'm like, Jesus, are you sure you have the right people here? Seem, seems like they're always off on an adventure and missing the point of everything. Jesus said, these are the right guys. Peter preached. 3,000 people responded, and the church was born. One day, first day at First City, we had 186, I think, if I remember right. They had 3,000. What do you do with them? There, there's, let me just mention a few things. There were no Bibles to pass out, right? They were all new believers, they were not all covered in the dust of the rabbi because they hadn't been following Jesus around for three years. They didn't, they didn't know anything except this is good news and I want to be a part of it. So what do you do with them? Well, let's look at a couple of scriptures quickly this morning. The first one comes from um, Acts chapter 2. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, these 3,000-plus people, and to fellowship, being with each other, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You know, eating together has always been a part of church. It's very scriptural, okay? And everyone was filled with awe, and at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, all the believers were together, and they had everything in common. And when they found out that someone had a need, somebody would sell something and raise some money and they would help take care of the need. And they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and joined the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Every day the church got bigger. Started with 3,000 and then there's more, and there's more, and there's more. One more verse real quick, Acts 5.42. It says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Temple courts. This is temple court. This is big, you know, not 3,000. But this is like a big meeting all together on Sunday morning. They did that. But it says they also met from house to house, small groups. That was the strategy of the early church. Is when we can, we'll get everybody together in this public place and we'll have church. But that's, the apostles said that's not going to be enough. They're not going to get everything they need just by listening to Peter or whoever it is preach on Sunday. So they go out here and... Here's a little handful. They get together in this house in this neighborhood. And here's another little group. They get together in this house over here. In the Sounds a lot like small groups to me. That was the strategy of the early church. 
And then pretty soon, it wasn't just the temple courts where Jerusalem was. It started to spread and started to go all over the place. Paul made those famous missionary journeys. And I'm convinced in my heart and from Scripture that Paul would go into one of these places and he would preach and people would say, I want to be a part of that. Then I don't quote me exactly on this, but I think he said to him, okay, great, you need to be a part of a small group if you want to be a part of this, if you really want to learn what it's all about. And it has continued until we are all here this morning, thousands of years later. So on your sheet, you have some blanks. I'm going to quickly tell you some things here that small groups can do. The first one, small groups can provide belonging or community, if you want to put that in your first blank, community. Small groups are a place of connection, place to make friends, place of relationship, place to feel like you belong, place to be bonded together with other people in love, to feel that you matter, that you're important. It was always intended to be about community. And as wonderful as it is for us all to be together in the big meeting this morning, you don't necessarily build community by all sitting together here in this room for an hour and 15 minutes. Where community is built is in a small group where you really connect and where you make friends. I'm not going to say too much about this, but just can't leave it alone. You're going to make flesh and blood friends, not Facebook friends. Some of you know I'm not on Facebook. That's just my own choice. I have my reasons. If you love Facebook, God bless you. I'm glad that you do. But having 100 friends on Facebook is not the same thing as having 10 flesh and blood people that you gather together with every week in somebody's house and you share life together and you build that community. Number two, small groups are a place for support and encouragement. We all need to know that somebody believes in us. You can, <clears throat> excuse me, you can find plenty of things to be discouraged about, right? You can find plenty of people in this world who are negative, who will bring you down, who don't provide encouragement, who don't provide support. But it's a whole other thing to have a loving group where there is optimism instead of pessimism, where people are trying to support and encourage. Absolutely necessary. Number three, Small groups can provide accountability. Okay, sometimes I don't like that word, accountability. But accountability means that I have to take responsibility for my actions, right? Now, watch this. If you meet someone who says, well, I'm accountable to myself, I would say you certainly are, but... Watch. If they say, well, I'm only accountable to myself and nobody else, then I'm going to say everybody stand back and watch because there's fixing to be a train wreck right here in this person's life because all of us have 
what? Blinders. Sometimes we think we're on top of the world and we're not. Sometimes we think we're doing great and going right down the place we're supposed to go and we're not. And that's why we need other people in our lives that love us enough to say, Fred, have you really thought about this? Are you sure this is what you're supposed to be doing, where you're supposed to be going? Somebody to hold me accountable. And there are too many scriptures, I must emphasize it, say to hold me accountable in love. It's never about beating somebody up. Like, Fred, I'm going to talk to you about this because I love you, because I want what's best for you. Here's another thing. Accountability, it's kind of like the word accountant, somebody who counts things. Many times I've heard a story that goes like this. Well, I went to that church, and I, I went for a while, and then I just stopped going. Nobody called me. Nobody came to see me. Nobody wrote me a letter. Nobody checked on me, you know. So I'm really, really hurt by that. And I'm sure they are, but I'm going to tell them in love. You know why? Nobody knows who you are. They don't know who you are if you just come and sit here by yourself on Sunday and leave. Now, if that same person goes over here and says, well, I'm going to be a part of this small group. Here's 10 or 12 people. We're all together every week. If I go missing for three weeks and nobody knows anything about me, Nobody knows where I am or what's going on. What are the chances that somebody in that group are going to check up on me? About 110%, if, if that's possible, mathematically. Everybody's, because we know each other. We're friends with each other. You know, we have some great men who serve as shepherds in this church. There's this whole idea that we're a flock and we're supposed to be shepherded, watched over, but we all have to be a part of that process. You can't expect just a small handful of people to watch out for everybody because, number one, they don't know what's going on with everybody. You don't find that out by sitting here in this room. You only find that out how? When you're over here in a small group. So small groups can provide accountability. Number four, small groups can bring growth, spiritual growth. It's a safe place to grow and mature. It's a good place to receive advice and counsel, to follow the example of others, to be nourished, to serve, and to be served. It's the place to shape our ethic, our compass in life. It's like a family. I'll tell you my story very quickly. When I finished at the university, being a minister was not even a blip on my radar. I would have, if you'd have asked me, I said, there is no way on God's green earth that I will ever be a minister. Why would you think that? I came home. I went to work in a family business. It was a truck business. Worked with my father for a number of years. Thoroughly enjoyed that. But all that time, I was involved in small groups through church. And more and more and more, I started to feel this call on my life. And it's like, you know, everybody needs trucks, but Fred, you're not supposed to do trucks. That's not your deal. God said, I have other plans for you. Everything, you know, I didn't formally study or train to be a minister because that wasn't my plan. 
most everything that I know about ministry, I learned in small groups. I don't have it anymore. When I cleaned out my office, I think I finally got rid of it. But for years, I saved the very first lesson that I ever did in a small group. You know what? It was terrible. It was just terrible. I used When I needed to be humbled, I used to pull that out and say, man, that was bad. But I got better. That was how I learned. And that's why small groups were so important to me as a place to grow and a place to mature. Number five, it's a place for forgiveness and for restoration. All of us have sinned, right, and fallen short of the glory of God, the Scripture says. Sometime as we travel along through life, we're going to fall down. And when we do, we need somebody there who will not be like, told you so. That's not what I need when I fall down. I need somebody who will say, let me help you get up. Let's dust you off. Let's figure this thing out. And let's, let's forgive. Let's be compassionate. Let's be gracious. And then now let's figure out how we go on from here so that we try to grow and learn from this and we don't repeat this same mistake again. Forgiveness and compassion and restoration. What a blessing. Number six. Small groups are a place to find security. There's an expression that says, hey, buddy, I got your six. What does that mean? You know, if you're in the military, you're walking straight ahead, that's 12 o'clock. Where's six o'clock? Got your back. I'm watching out for you. It is the, the friendships that I have built in these small groups through the years. It's, it's, I've said this many times. It's one of my life's greatest blessings because I know in my heart of hearts there are people here and people in other places who've got my back. And if I were in trouble at 3 o'clock in the morning, I know in my heart of hearts that I can pick up the phone and there are people that I can call and they will be there right away. What? What a blessing and what a terrible thing for the person who doesn't have that kind of security. Who says, man, I'm in a mess here and there's nobody to call. There's nobody to come and stand with me. There's nobody to help. How do you build those kind of relationships? Being together in a small group. And then lastly, number seven, it, small groups can multiply our influence. It just is simply saying one person can do a lot of good things, but the Scripture says that two are better than one, three is even stronger, four, five, six, eleven, twelve, whatever it is, is even more. One person can have a lot of influence, but a whole group of people together working together for one common purpose, can do so much more. So small groups can multiply influence. God has a plan for your life. Remember, a goal without a plan is just a wish. God has more than a wish for all of us. God has a plan. And He has a goal. 
And the ultimate goal is for us to safely arrive home together one day in the place that Jesus has prepared for us to be with him forever. And in the meantime, until we arrive there safely, the mission is for us to travel together and try to become more and more like Jesus. Try to love people and love one another like Jesus loved people. Try to be compassionate like Jesus. Try to serve like Jesus served to get some of that rabbi dust all over us. And then one day, we'll be with him forever. Now, there are other things in this, but watch this. It has always, 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 always been God's plan that you would not do this alone. That we would do it together. Sometimes people talk about this horizontal and vertical relationship. I have a relationship with God. I also have a relationship with all of you. And you can't have one without the other. You can't say, oh, you know, God and I, we are so tight, but I have no use for those people at the church. God says that was never the plan. Or you can't say, well, I just really love church, and I like being with everybody, and it's so fun, but this whole thing about God and obedience and all, that's just not my, you know, it's not my cup of tea. God says, no, you can't do that either. This was always planned from the very beginning for us to be in relationship with him and to be in relationship with each other. There was never a plan for a Christian Lone Ranger. There's never a plan for a Christian to be all by themselves alone. It was always intended to be in a community of people together. Rick said this last week. You remember God created Adam and he said, it is not good for this guy, what, to be alone. It is not good for him to be alone. So we better get some other people involved in relationship with him. Worship team's going to come up now, and we're going to wrap this up and go into our time of communion. But I want to want to leave you with this. I mentioned it briefly, but 50 years ago, over 50 years ago, I was a 17-year-old freshman at the University of Florida, and that was when I led my first small group. I hadn't been a Christian a week. And somebody said, hey, you need to have a small group in your dorm. And I'm like, what? And you know what? Remember what I said? The first lesson that I ever did was terrible. But for some reason, when they said you need to do that, I said, okay, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll start trying to lead this small group in my dormitory room. And all through the years, 50 years now, I've been leading and been a part of small groups. Now, before I say anything else, let's have a little truth in advertising, okay? You ready? Right now, I am not a part of a small group. Since I retired, I decided I was going to take a sabbatical. And can I tell you, it has been sweet. It has been so sweet and such a good thing for me and for my wife. But that's coming to an end. And I'll be back. 
And I'll be in a small group again. Maybe I'll be leading one if that's what the Lord wants. And I'm just going to talk to a very small handful of you. Maybe you've been doing this for years and years and years and you're just burned out. It's okay to take a break. You don't have to feel guilty about that. But don't stay gone too long because we need you. We need you to come back. Some things that I have seen in small groups. I've been with people where illness has come. And we have prayed and we have served and healing came and we all jumped up and down and celebrated. But I also have been in small groups where illness came and we served and we prayed and healing did not come. And we ended up at a coffin, at a grave. I've been in small groups where the new births, new babies like Matt have been celebrated. This, this just, the memory of it, it still just shakes me. I've been there and done funerals with a coffin the size of a shoebox for an infant. Been in groups where we celebrate children and their accomplishments and you know, he got a scholarship or, he, you know, this, this, all these great things that happened with our kids. I've been in groups where somebody comes in and says, well, my son got arrested this week. And he's in jail. Now what, now what do I do? I could tell you so many stories like that, but here's the point. I am not trying to say to you this morning that if you join a small group, that somehow you will be exempt from all of life's struggles and difficulties. But I am saying to you, if you will, you do not have to do it alone. And either way, God gets the glory. The Bible says we need to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, right now, much as I love you all, I don't know who's rejoicing and who's weeping always. But when we're together in somebody's living room, I know. And we can fulfill our responsibility to be a loving community. So please let me encourage you to join a small group for all these reasons and many more. Real quick, if you haven't seen it, there's a wall downstairs across from the information desk. On that wall... There's a whole rack of cards, one for each different group like this. You can find one you like. There's all kinds. And get more information about that and then go and be a part of that. And I believe in my heart of hearts it will be one of your life's greatest blessings.